Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back, my Bible study friends. Before we dive in, let's begin our time together today by taking a moment to consider how much we think we know about this story of Noah. Whether you have heard or even read this story a thousand times or have no idea who I'm even talking about, this is helpful because at the end of our study time together, you'll be able to look back to see how much you've learned. Noah, the ark, the animals, the flood, the rainbow— I would encourage all of us to press pause right now and take a moment to think about and maybe even write down everything you know or think you might know about Noah. And then I want us to think about or write down anything that you want to know by the end of our reading of Noah and the book of Genesis. There are no right or wrong answers to this, just an inventory of sorts before we begin. And I can't adequately express how much I wish I could specifically see or hear the things that you want to know about Noah, because I myself had so very many questions going into the prep research and study for our time together today. But I have to be honest with you, even after all my studying, I still have questions. There are a lot of unknowns to the scriptures we will study today, but here's my promise. I will continue to put this research-loving brain of mine to work, finding answers to as many of my own questions as possible here. But truthfully, Anytime we are left with questions, it merely provides us with the desire to study more. And that's never a bad thing, is it? Digging deeper into God's word is never a waste of our time, my friends. It is hard, but holy work. So with all that thought through, before we begin reading about this man named Noah, let's also keep in mind that we are only six chapters into this first book of the Bible, and the world's already a mess. As a quick refresher, in Genesis 1, the world is perfect. In Genesis 2, God sees that Adam needs someone to make life more fulfilling, so enter Eve. But in Genesis 3, sin enters a world through Adam and Eve's disobedience in eating from the forbidden tree. And then in Genesis 4, we see things get worse with Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. The first true crime story in the Bible, remember that discussion from the last episode? Oh my. Then, after a bunch of time passes, we see in Genesis 5 a lot of generations come to be. But as they grow in number... They also increase in wickedness. We don't have a play-by-play of what is happening during that time, but it had to be really bad for us to arrive at Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, and read the words we're going to read in a minute, that God was grieved he had made humanity. Goodness gracious. So the total number of years from Adam to the beginning of the flood is 1,656 years. Okay, I believe we have the framework in place and are now ready to move into our reading of Genesis chapter 6 from the New Living Translation. Ready, friends? Let's begin. A world gone wrong. Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women— They gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, 
and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. The story of Noah. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless living person on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar, inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening the roof all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. But I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat. You and your wife and your sons and their wives bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Okay, let me just say right here, I quickly discovered in my research that there has been and continues to this day to be very much a lot of debate going on about what is happening in the first four verses found here in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 2, we see the first reference to the term sons of God used. This is one way scripture refers to angelic beings. This is an interesting section, and there are a lot of theories on it, but according to the Bible recap, the prevailing understanding among historic Jewish texts is that the sons of God refer to fallen angels, which means that sons of God, the fallen angels, took human wives and had children with them, creating this crossbreed of angels and humans. In this section of scripture, they are referred to as the Nephilim. In Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12, we see that the angels in heaven don't procreate, but that potentially could be for two reasons. First, the angels in heaven are referred to as elect angels, who live within the bounds of God's rules and don't rebel against him. But second, scripture seems to indicate that all angels are male. We never see a female angel in scripture, so if they're all male, they can't procreate among themselves. But if they were to procreate with human females, then theoretically, this type of crossbreeding would be possible. If that's the case, then there's a strong chance that the fallen angels procreating with women corresponds to the increasing wickedness on the earth. Why would fallen angels want to do this? Here's a popular theory. If you were an angel who resided in heaven with God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit, and you knew that the plan from before the creation of the earth was that God the Father was going to someday send God the Son to earth, born as a human named Jesus, who was conceived by God the Spirit to redeem and restore everything, and then you rebelled against God and his kingdom, wouldn't you want to thwart that plan? Wouldn't you want to counterfeit it in an attempt to deceive people and to defeat him? 
So it could be that the enemy was trying to corrupt the human bloodline to prevent the birth of the Messiah by counterfeiting the supernatural and natural union. It's possible. It's important that we hold all of this with an open hand because we don't have enough info here. We don't want to scream where scripture whispers. But if this did happen the way the ancient Jews understood it, then God wiping out all this crossbreed population via the flood, which is about to happen, totally makes sense. He's wiping out the enemy's attempt to wipe out the Messiah's bloodline. And in this scenario, the only family whose bloodline hadn't been infiltrated by fallen angels was Noah's family. So God preserved them. We see God's sovereignty on display. Nothing can thwart his will. Nothing can keep him from his plan to rescue the people he has entered into relationship with. The enemy's attempts to thwart the bloodline of Christ did not prevail. Truthfully, of all the possible explanations for these verses, I landed on sharing this version as it is related with our previous discussion of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, about Satan's repeated attempts throughout history to try to destroy those in the lineage of the Messiah to avoid the coming of Jesus, the one who God promised would crush the enemy's head. If you aren't sure what I'm talking about, please be sure to listen to episode 7 of this podcast. Over halfway through, you will hear a reference to chapter 3, verse 15, and an excerpt of a message from Levi Lesko entitled The End of Christmas. I promise this episode, along with episode 8, will help in clarifying or be a helpful reminder if you've already listened about the importance of the genealogy and bloodline of Jesus and the many ways throughout history that the enemy has tried to wreak havoc on it. In chapter 6, verse 4, we see the giant Nephilites referenced. Also called the Nephilim, my study Bible notes indicate that this word could possibly mean fallen ones but traditionally references giants. These Nephilites were probably people who were between 9 or even 10 foot tall. The same Hebrew term was used to name the tall race of people the spies of Israel saw when scouting in the Promised Land in Numbers chapter 13 verse 33. Goliath, who was 9 feet tall, appears in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Throughout scripture, the giants used their physical advantage to oppress the people around them. Moving on in this chapter of Genesis, consider this amazing perspective with me for a minute. In verse 6, we see that humans grieved God because of their actions. Let's sit with this a bit more. This insight into an intimate God who feels pain and disappointment. How does seeing God brokenhearted over sin in this story impact your view of Him? It reminds me of the tenderness of a loving father's heart toward his children, the grief for all he sees his children doing. The NLT Life Application Bible says here that God was expressing His deep sorrow for what the people had done to themselves. Like a parent might express sorrow over a rebellious child, God was sorry that the people chose sin and death instead of a relationship with Him. Ouch, friends. I'm definitely feeling conviction here to consider the many times I have chosen sin over my relationship with God as well. I'm thankful for His grace, mercy, and forgiveness, but also humbled to envision our God of the universe brokenhearted over our sin. Wow, just wow. Right Now Media's study, God's Unbreakable Promises, describes what is happening in chapter 6 in this way. Genesis tells us that humanity had become so corrupt, so wicked, they entertained only evil continually in their hearts. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. This was a far cry from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Things were so bad that Genesis chapter 6 verse 7 tells us God was grieved to his heart. In response, God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. What's so interesting is that Jesus addressed these days of Noah in the New Testament book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. This cross-reference scripture referenced in my NLT study Bible reads, When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. 
People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Along the same lines, in the message translation of the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 26 through 27, Jesus says, The time of the Son of Man will be just like the time of Noah, everyone carrying on as usual, having a good time right up to the day Noah boarded the ship. They suspected nothing until the flood hit and swept everything away. In these passages, Jesus tells that the, those living in Noah's days, those whom Noah will soon warn to repent in Genesis or judgment would come, ignored the warnings and continued to live their lives, business as usual. They had no fear, no conviction, no regret for how they were living. The end for them came suddenly and unexpectedly. Kind of sounds hopeless, right? Then we read, but Noah. Oh, how you will sure learn to love it every time you see this word, but in God's word. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Just as it seems that all hope is lost forever, a little word, three letters long, is introduced into the narrative, and that little word changes everything. But, B-U-T. It may seem like we are making too big a deal over three little letters, but the truth is the use of this word has never looked so good, friends, because this little word marks a big change in direction. Just as we read God had declared he would wipe out all living things, verse 8 continues, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, when we picture Noah, this righteous man who walked with God and was blameless in his generation, it can be easy to imagine a guy who had it all together. But we know that the thing about people who seem too good to be true is that they usually are. And Noah was no exception. Noah stood out among his generation for the simple reason that he walked with God or wholeheartedly loved and obeyed God. So while we may be tempted to think Noah's righteousness earned him God's favor, we couldn't be further from the truth in that thought. God's favor is never earned. It is always a gift of grace. The promised one, seeing Jesus in Genesis. As I promised in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, we are going to once again pick up from a conversation about Enoch walking with God from episode 8. This time, we see Noah is described as doing the same. So what does that phrase mean exactly? In her book and Bible study called Flooded, Nikki Koziars describes what is going on here in this way. This was not an out-for-a-few-laps-around-the-park kind of walk. It was a place in Noah's soul where he became settled on who God was to him through a daily decision to show up before God, a decision to do the work he asked him to do. Walking with God meant Noah consciously thought about God being present with him throughout the day and wanting that. It means the same for us too, friends. Now, before we dig into what God is asking of Noah in the next verses of this chapter, can we just stop for a minute and think about this initial moment more closely? Have you ever wondered where Noah was when God met him with this ark assignment? We don't know for sure, but I have a feeling that Noah was just going on about his business and that in one moment, with one encounter with God, life as he knew it changed. Can you relate to this? I'm sure we can all think of times in our lives where everything changed in a moment. In considering verse 13, where God details the coming destruction of the world, alongside verse 18, in which God details to Noah the list of the only ones who would enter the ark, Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their wives. Can you imagine? That's it. Out of the whole earth's population at the time, there would only be eight survivors of this coming flood. That alone is a lot to process. With that in mind, let's take a pause here in the middle of studying these verses to remind ourselves that real human being life is happening here as well. These were real people with real feelings, real emotions, and real doubts. While these scriptures aren't telling us anything about what is going on behind the scenes through all this, we know there was a lot going on emotionally. 
You know there had to be frustrations, fear, sadness, and a whole listing of other emotions within Noah's family. Can you imagine how all of this knowledge felt as they went about their day-to-day lives? Passed by people in the market? Spoke to people they cared about? Lived life in general? I can think of a few emotions here. Overwhelm, heartbreak, and deep, deep sadness. While at the same time, the knowledge that a whole slew of work needed to be done to prepare for the coming of a flood that seemed to defy everything they knew about the world they lived in at the time. Consider this. God asked Noah and his family to do something that probably made little sense to them at the time. To invest day after day, year after year, decade after decade for over a hundred years in building a huge wooden ark on dry ground when they had likely never seen rain falling from the sky in the desert in which they lived. Well, this required a lot of faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about things that had never happened. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, Noah believed what God told him about something he had never seen and in fact had no framework for. Noah took God at his word, and sure enough, as we will soon see, what God had warned about and prepared Noah for will soon happen. In the Promised One study, Guthrie says, While Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, God looked at the rest of humanity and saw only evil, corruption, and violence. So God determined to destroy them, but not all of them. God still had every intention to fulfill his promise to send the offspring who would crush the head of Satan and break the curse on all creation. He had not forsaken his plan for the whole earth to be filled with his glory. He intended to preserve one righteous man and his family. With this man, Noah, God would start over. Did you hear that, friends? God is still working the rescue plan he promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember that this plan is the big picture story or meta-narrative that we will continue to see develop throughout the entirety of the Bible. How exciting for us to see evidence of this plan developing as we continue working our way through these pages. God didn't destroy everyone and start all over in Noah's time because he was being true to a promise he made to Satan after he tempted Adam and Eve to sin in the Garden of Eden. Jesus came from the line of Adam. God is a promise keeper, period. In the flooded book, Koziars add this perspective to what is going on here with Noah when she says, looking back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we see God gave the way he would save humanity. He was going to make the earth right again through a flood that would cover the entire earth, a clean slate. Whether Noah agreed or not wasn't the issue. God had a way, and it would be up to Noah to listen to the way. But in Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22, I also see God giving Noah a word of hope. The word of hope was that Noah, his family, and almost 7,000 creatures would be saved. This encouraging word from God was a space of hope tucked in to help Noah believe and trust in God during this incredibly hard way. In fact, this was a revelation of God's mercy, and he wasn't going to do away with humanity, period. And because of this way and word, you and I are here on earth today. Grace and mercy, for sure. Okay, let's move on to study the ark more closely now. I learned in my research that an ark can be confused with a boat or a ship, but an ark was different in one specific way. There is nothing to steer in an ark. Ships and boats all have steering mechanisms. An ark needs to float, stay balanced, and be able to hold a lot of cargo. Ships and boats do similar things, but they have specific destinations. In Flooded, Koziar shares, Noah's assignment was to build something that would last and sustain them during this long season. But the destination of the ark is something we never see God show Noah in the scriptures. 
He has no idea how long he will be on the ark, and since arks don't have steering mechanisms, Noah had no idea where God would be taking him. Listening becomes hard when we don't know exactly where we are going or for how long even. One of the most comforting things I see in Noah's process is that he didn't try to make sense of it all. He rolled with it all. God was in charge of the plan, and Noah was in charge of the process. Noah accepted this hard assignment from God, and then he did the work. Impressive obedience for sure, right, my friends? As a visual person, the measurements given in our text for the ark truly don't mean much to me. However, listen to these comparisons I found on the arkencounter.com website. And as a side note here, let me say that I was looking through this website and I have now added the Ark Encounter in Kentucky to my bucket list for sure. Even just looking at the images on their site gave me a glimpse of the enormity of the Ark. This is no cute little boat with animals sticking out the side as we often see in children's storybook Bibles or on Noah's Ark-themed nursery decor. Nope, not at all. And yes, the link can be found in the show notes or please, please, please do a Google search from the Ark Encounter for yourself. Amazing. So very amazing. Okay, back to those comparisons I found. Question number one, how long was the ark? At approximately 510 feet long, it would take nearly one and a half football fields to equal the ark's length. That's big enough that NASA could lay three space shuttles nose to tail on the ark's roof. Question number two, how tall was the ark? The roof of Noah's ark was more than 50 feet from the ground, higher than a modern four-story house. That's plenty of space for the three extra tall inner decks as the Bible describes. The Ark had the same storage capacity as about 450 standard semi-trailers or more than 500 railroad stock cars. A standard livestock trailer holds about 250 sheep, so the Ark had the capacity to hold at least 120,000 sheep-sized animals. And then there's this measurement, one I know will mean more to my carpentry-minded husband Jason than it does to me, but here goes anyway. Oh, over 3.1 million board feet of timber were used in the construction of the ark. A board foot is 12 inches by 12 inches by 1 inch. In board feet laid end to end, there's enough timber in the ark construction to go from Williamstown, Kentucky to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is a distance of 611.7 miles. Wow. And while we're discussing the specifics of the ark, what about the animals on there? When considering the number of animal species in the world today, I was definitely curious and so researched the species here a bit more. Listen to what I discovered. So we know the Bible says that God told Noah to take two of every kind of animal and seven pair of the clean animals and flying creatures onto the ark with him, which leads me to question number three. What is the difference between a kind and a species? And was every species on the ark? The answer is no. My research indicated that species is a term used in the modern classification system. The Bible used the term kind, and this was a much broader category than the modern term of classification species. A good rule of thumb is that if two things can breed together, then they are of the same created kind. It is a bit more complicated than that, but this is a really good quick measure of a kind. Thus, there can be a tremendous amount of variation within a created kind. For example, various types of dogs such as wolves, dingoes, coyotes, jackals, and domestic dogs can often breed with one another. When dogs breed together, you get dogs, so there's a dog kind. Seems to me that the use of the word kind here in scripture is an important distinction, right? I hope that helps a bit, but don't worry. My research reporter brain still had a few more questions I wanted some answers to, such as, question number four, so how many kinds of animals? 
Recent studies estimate the total number of living and extinct kinds of land animals and flying creatures to be about 1,500. With a worst-case scenario approach to calculating the number of animals on the ark, this would mean that Noah cared for approximately 7,000 animals. Also, remember that the Bible states that Noah's cargo was limited to land-dwelling, air-breathing animals, as we saw in Genesis chapter 7, verse 15. Thus, we can exclude fish and other sea creatures, and maybe even exclude insects in our total number who came onto the ark. One thing we can be certain of, the construction of this enormous ark in the middle of the desert surely was a sight to see and a cause for a lot of buzz among the people. We don't know how many people saw Noah build the ark, but we can assume that some did over decades, as the size alone surely made it unmissable. The Bible calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. This means Noah spent a lot of time telling people about the ways of God and how important it would be to follow him. He likely begged people to be saved before the flood came. Considering how much evil was in the world at this time, though, Noah probably suffered a lot of ridicule, insults, hostility, and anger even from those he was trying to lead back to God. In verse 22, we read, So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Like walking with God, we will see this statement was made about Noah a few more times, as we will discover in our reading of chapter 7 in a bit. Have you noticed that there's no dialogue between God and Noah to study here? But we do know this from the text. God commanded, Noah obeyed. Obedience stems from a decision. Noah decided to obey God. He listened intently to the very specific instructions God was giving him, and then made the decision to jump into that assignment wholeheartedly for the next hundred plus years. And he also made a choice to trust that it was all going to fall into place eventually. By eventually, I mean when the time came for God to do as he said he would do with the flood. With that thought in mind, let's move on to Genesis 7 where we read, The flood covers the earth. When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, Go into the boat with all your family. For among all the peoples of the earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. Take with you seven pairs, male and female, of each animal I have approved for eating and for sacrifice. Take one pair of each of the others. Also take seven pairs of every kind of bird. There must be a male and a female in each pair to ensure that all life will survive on the earth after the flood. Seven days from now, I will make the rains pour down on the earth, and it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights until I have wiped from the earth all the living things I have created. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. He went on board the boat to escape the flood, he and his wife and his sons and their wives. With them were all the various kinds of animals, those approved for eating and for sacrifice and those that were not, along with all the birds and the small animals that scurry along the ground. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came and covered the earth. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. That very day, Noah had gone into the boat with his wife and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. With them in the boat were pairs of every kind of animal, domestic and wild, large and small, along with birds of every kind. Two by two, they came onto the boat, representing every living thing that breathes. A male and a female of each kind entered, just as God had commanded Noah, then the Lord closed the door behind them. For forty days, the flood waters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth, rising more than twenty-two feet above the highest peaks. All the living things on earth died. 
birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth, people, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and birds of the sky. All were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat, and the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. Okay, I have to admit right here that sometimes, well, scratch that, most times, my brain is my own worst enemy, especially when it comes to trusting God. I like to know a plan, work a plan, and have said plan all work out in the end. I think this tendency may be called controlling. Hug. Anyway, with that in mind, I can't help but wonder if Noah ever questioned many things in this process, one of which being just how all these male and female animals would just show up to board the boat. The New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible Note speaks to this thought in this way. Many have wondered how the Animal Kingdom Roundup happened. Did Noah and his son spend years collecting all the animals? In reality, the creation, along with Noah, was doing just as God had commanded. There seemed to be no problem gathering the animals. God took care of the details of that job while Noah was doing his part by building the boat. Often, we do just the opposite of Noah— We worry about details over which we have no control while neglecting specific areas such as attitudes, relationships, and responsibilities that are under our control. Like Noah, concentrate on what God has given you to do and leave the rest to God. Yep, guilty is charged of worry and control more often than not. Ouch. Note to self, God's got this and you, Em. So we understand that building the ark was hard, but did you notice that God actually did the hardest thing for Noah? When all the animals, Noah, his wife, their sons, and their wives were all on board and the rain starts, the Lord God closed the door behind them. Can you imagine as you are standing there seeing all of your friends, all of your family, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, all of your family starting to run toward the ark because after over a hundred years of preaching this message, they finally believe you that something really bad is going to happen and they are all heading towards you and you have to close the door? I know I can't even begin to comprehend all the emotions stirred in that moment. And then we see that God is actually the one who closes the door. So God did the hardest part of this assignment. After the door is closed, can you imagine all the screams they heard from inside the ark and the frantic pounding on the outside of the door? Oh, my heart at the thought of this. The Jesus Bible references what is happening so far in these chapters in Genesis in this way. In the days of Noah, the wickedness of mankind had reached a breaking point. The people had done the very thing God commanded them to do in the garden. They have been fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth, as found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Sadly, rather than filling the earth with image bearers to reflect God's glory, they have instead filled the earth with brokenness. The sin that started with Adam and Eve in the garden has spread throughout the whole world, and every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. In response to the rebellion of humanity, God sent a flood to destroy every living creature on the earth. People died, old people and young, beautiful and brave, along with the grizzly and the gray. Only Noah and those family members with him escaped the terrible, universal death of the wicked. Even the survival of Noah and his family was the result of undeserved mercy because they were broken and sinful like everyone else, as we will see when we study in Genesis chapter 9 and the next Open Our Bibles Together episode. Now, in Genesis chapter 8, the NLT reads, The flood recedes. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth, 
and the floodwaters began to recede. The underground water stopped flowing. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth, and the floodwaters began to recede. The underground water stopped flowing, and the torrential rains from the sky were stopped. So the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth. After 150 days, exactly five months from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest on the mountains of Erot. Two and a half months later, as the waters continued to go down, other mountain peaks became visible. After another 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the boat and released a raven. The bird flew back and forth until the floodwaters on the earth had dried up. He also released a dove to see if the water had receded and it could find any dry ground. But the dove could find no place to land because the water still covered the ground. So it returned to the boat, and Noah held out his hand and drew the dove back inside. After waiting another seven days, Noah released the dove again. This time the dove returned to him in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its beak. Then Noah knew that the floodwaters were almost gone. He waited another seven days and then released the dove again. This time it did not come back. Noah was now 601 years old. On the first day of the new year, ten and a half months after the flood began, the floodwaters had almost dried up from the earth. Noah lifted back the covering of the boat and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. Two more months went by, and at last the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, Leave the boat, all of you, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, and the small animals that scurry along the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. So Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives left the boat, and all the large and small animals and birds came out of the boat, pair by pair. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed his burnt offerings, the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. In verse 1 we read, but God remembered Noah. Do you think that maybe, just maybe after those 150 days, that Noah was like, um, hello God, do you remember me? Have you forgotten about us on this ark? I think it is important for us to hear these thoughts from Koziars in the flooded book in regards to the use of the word remembered in this verse. The word used here is the exact opposite of forgetting. This word remembered means God is about to take action on Noah's behalf which indicates that it wasn't time to act prior to this moment, that there was nothing for God to do prior to this point except wait. So it rained, and the floodwaters rose for 40 days and 40 nights. Then we read of another five months, two and a half months, another 40 days, seven days, and so on. That's a lot of waiting. But the actual full timeline we see play out in these scriptures indicates that there was a total of over a year from the beginning of the flood to the time they exited the ark. Talk about sea legs. What would you have done first? Noah had to be suffering from a level of grief that you and I can't even comprehend. Noah stepped off the ark and the earth was completely different, my friends. All of the earth had been covered with water, so the way things looked before, gone. Not only that, but everyone else that he had known was also gone. His grocery clerk, his banker, his friends he did life with, they're all gone. And now he is left with this reality of a new world he is literally stepping into. I don't think we take enough time as we studied Noah to think about the grief that he experienced, the trauma he and his family went through for a very extended amount of time, and what that would have done to their faith. But you know what we see is the first thing Noah did when he stepped off the ark? It was build an altar 
and sacrifice and worship God. I have to take a minute here to interrupt with this thought, friends. I don't know that that is always my first reaction after coming out of a hard season. How incredible it is to recognize that the first thing Noah teaches us after leaving the ark is that worship is the most important thing to do in those moments on the other side of the hard things in our lives. What an amazingly beautiful testimony of faith and ours if we too will make the choice to worship. All right, my friends, as we are nearing the end of our study time together in this episode, I hope you remember this truth. The goal is never perfection in our Bible reading. Nope. Our goal is to just keep opening our Bibles to know God more and more through his word. And hey, friends, guess what? I'll be right back here in two weeks with more about Noah, plus a promise and a rainbow, plus a whole bunch more names in the lineage from Noah to Abram, and the Tower of Babel will be thrown into the discussion too. Moses, remember the author of Genesis, is sure blazing through history at warp speed, right? (laughs) And I'm so glad you are all along for this quote-unquote ride with me, friends. And as a fun teaser for next time, I will be making an announcement about where we are headed after Noah and the tower that you absolutely won't want to miss. Be sure to listen in and find out more. I'm so excited already. In the meantime, though, can I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast? Why should you subscribe, you ask? Because that way you don't have to go find it. It comes to you. Free delivery. (laughs) If you want to subscribe, all you have to do is go to the main page for the Open Our Bibles Together with M. Faring podcast wherever you're listening right now, and click subscribe. Subscribing is the best way to never miss an episode, and I will just show up in your podcast app ready to study with you. Also, be sure to check out the additional resources in this episode's show notes. Several, several resources for further study of Noah's Ark, and even some size comparisons if you're interested in that kind of thing like I am. (laughs) You can find the show notes by swiping up on your podcast app screen to see the link below, but if you can't find them there, they're always available at mfaring.com in the show notes section of the podcast pages. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. Mm-hmm.